It is a joy to worship with you, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you have them. Now's a great time to return to the habit of bringing the Word to church. Uh, as we study the Word and hide it in our hearts, if it's on your phone, fantastic. We're going to walk through Philippians together. Uh, but what a gift of grace it is to worship together. Uh, as you noted in Carrie's prayer and have heard by now, we do lament the loss of Lewis Abendon, who was a faithful shepherd of this congregation for over 30 years. Uh, we also celebrate the reality of not only his legacy of collaborative leadership in the city, but the fact that the promises of God are true, that he has been welcomed into the presence of the Lord, into uh, heaven, which is our home. And he has heard Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, Lewis had uh, an indelible impact on our congregation. Several, uh, the intentionality of his relationship and shepherding care is uh, really unparalleled, but also uh, the collaborative leadership that he led in our city uh, is something that continues to bear tremendous fruit. Uh, we celebrate that um, through our ministry partners that he helped start, but also several different initiatives that we have as a congregation right now. One of them is the KRL, uh, which is a collaborative space and more holistically loving our neighbors and the neighborhoods and the uh, Redeeming the Christ Task Force, the RTC, uh, who has been working tirelessly, in fact, to put together some corridors for our congregation to be able to care for people in our congregation and community uh, who have been afflicted by the casualties that are cascading down from the COVID-19 crisis. We hope that you um, will bring yourself up to speed on the RTC on our website, but uh, Fred Corley is our deacon representative on the RTC, and we were talking about Lewis on Thursday night, and Fred uh, noted that when he first started coming uh, to First Presbyterian Church, that uh, Lewis caught him after a service, and he said, Fred, it's good to see the white of your eyes, and Fred goes, what do you mean? He goes, because when I'm preaching, all I see is you sleeping. Now, as you're leaving, I can see the white of your eyes. <laughs> Lewis was relentless at really wanting the congregation to embrace the power of the gospel so that we could live the power of the gospel in our city, really seeking the purposes of God here. I remember the first time I heard him preach, I, I met Lewis. I worked with him for uh, the last two years before he retired back in 2002. Um, and I, the first time I heard him preach, I remember it here in a phrase that just kind of stuck in my mind. He said, the gospel comforts the afflicted, and it afflicts the comfortable. Lewis uh, was a conduit of that, and if you ever worked with him or were in a meeting with him, then you, you realize he, he had a sense of urgency always. Uh, he would make his wristwatch kind of go back and forth to let you know uh, time's up. So if Trip, if you start ro rolling your wristwatch as a former clerk of session, I'll know it's time to close in prayer. But we're going to carry on that tradition our heritage of our congregation, but really of the people of God. And as we look at Philippians chapter 4, we're going to focus on some imperatives that Paul gives the church. I'm going to warn you, Paul gets a little bit bossy in this section. There is like eight or nine different imperatives, commands for God's people, but we got to, we must, we got to, we got to, excuse me, we must resist the temptation to look at the imperatives of Scripture of things that we need to accomplish so that we can have victory, things that we need to accomplish so that we can have freedom. That's not the gospel of the Christian faith. Every world religion and every organization or, or uh, other, other um, uh, thing that we've participated in our life, it is we perform so that we can achieve. But the gospel is Christ has performed, he has achieved, and he has given you his record. 
if you look at the first uh, word in this passage, then you, then you see it. Uh, Therefore, my brothers. Paul is connecting this section to everything that is gone before it in this passage, in this book. All the way back in chapter 1, where Paul says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Therefore, connects us to chapter 2, where we read about the ultimate underdog victory, Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God, but he came and became a servant of all. Then he conquered the grave, having victory over death, and he became Lord of all, so that all who believe in him can experience his victory. Uh, therefore connects us also to chapter 3 where we study the primacy of our identity and our relationship with Jesus Christ there is no greater thing in our life all else is just rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ personally therefore connects us to this larger context in the destination of where we're going in this passage I want you to look down at verse 9 Paul is taking us to a certain place in this pericope that the God of peace will be with you. And again, in verse 6, we see the, the heart of what he's saying, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. And when we understand that as an opportunity for those who have received victory, then we will see these imperatives are not a ladder by which we climb to get to the fruit of the kingdom that we have because our commander-in-chief is one. But they are a set of railroad tracks that we follow so that we can experience the fullness of the victory that Christ gives us. I'm reminded of this paradigm. I was reading last week a book, and I came across a story about a guy named General Jonathan Wainwright. And I looked at uh, this story. It checked out to be true. And later, after the first service, found out that actually General Wainwright, uh, after this happened, he moved to San Antonio. He even became an honorary cavalier, right? So this guy's like one of us, apparently. So General Wainwright was the highest-ranking person in the military during World War II that was taken into a POW camp. He was uh, in battle against the Japanese, and he had limited supplies, and so General Wainwright decided to save as many troops as he can, and he surrendered to the Japanese. He was called the fighting general for the three years that he was in a POW camp. The POW camp where he served was in a remote part of Mongolia. Talk about adding insult to injury, right? It was so remote that when World War II was over, General Wainwright's POW camp didn't get news of victory. So after the Allied forces had won World War II and uh, there had been surrender in both arenas of World War II, he was still living as a POW for weeks, even months, until someone came with news that let the POW camp hear of the victory of their army. And when General Wainwright heard of the victory of the Allied forces, this is what history records, he went to the head of the POW camp. And he said, my commander-in-chief has beat your commander-in-chief. I'm in charge now. <laughs> True story. And immediately the Japanese commander surrendered 
and General Wainwright took control of this area without firing a single shot. The truth of victory, it set General Wainwright and those prisoners of war free. When the gospel, the good news came, everything changed. The enemy lost his power. Even the commander surrendered to General Wainwright. So when Paul starts this with a therefore connecting us with the victory of our commander-in-chief, it creates a whole new reality for God's people. He's going to get bossy, but it is for our restoration and renewal. It is an opportunity for all who stand in the Lord. That's the first thing that we see in this passage, that peace is found where we stand. Now, Paul is writing from a prison, but he is communicating to the people of God that no matter where you are, you can have peace when you stand in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Standing firm. It connects us back to, uh, to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul implores the church to stand firm in one spirit. He says back there to live your lives worthy of the gospel. And we talked about how that could be translated, should be translated. Live your life as worthy citizens. That connects us with chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul calls the church citizens of heaven, connecting us to this larger reality, one that is greater than what we feel, one that is greater than what we see, one that is greater than the POW camps we often find ourselves in. There is a victory that gives us a greater identity, and Paul says to have the peace, we must stand in the Lord, in that victory. And it's never done in isolation or autonomy. We need one another. Look at the familial language of this passage. Brothers and sisters, he says, whom I love and long for. He calls them my joy and my crown. And in verse 4, he calls, says, you are my beloved. We need one another to stand firmly in Christ, in the Lord. Where you stand matters. St. Antonio's understand the significance of the centrality of God and his mission. If you were to type in your phones into Google any city in the country and ask for directions, it would take you to where the city council meets, the town hall. But if you do that for San Antonio and type in where San Antonio is, it takes you not to city hall or the seat of any government, but it takes you to a mission. San Fernando Cathedral the heart of our city, that over 300 years ago, the mission city was founded on mission. For Christ, yes, it's mingled. It is a very mingled history, but the heart does not need to be lost. That there is, uh, as San Antonio's, something that we can understand that is greater than just being a city, a greater identity and purpose. I think, honestly believe, that that's one of the bases that is giving us a foundation for an amazing amount of unity in the church right now in our city. Leaders are coming together. Churches are coming together. And there's a phenomenal display of beauty and unity. But it also points us to the call that we have as Christians to stand in the Lord. 
We stand in the Lord. That's the first imperative. The second is to agree in the Lord. You see it in verse 2. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Unity, standing in the Lord, is shown in agreement in the Lord. These two women who were partners with Paul, co-laborers in the early church. It's phenomenal the amount of dignity that Paul shows women considering the first century context. Their leadership and influence in the church is beautiful and powerful. But in this instant, he is focusing on the priority of unity. Standing firm in the Lord, agreeing with one another. This is uh, gospel reconciliation that is commanded through intimate relationship and gospel mediation. It is proactive response in community to not allow, allow the things of our culture, the things of our city to infiltrate and divide. Things that we often get hyperactive about, we must be gospelly proactive in removing so that we can agree in the Lord. In Scripture, there's good unity and there's bad unity. Bad unity is shown in the Tower of Babel. People have their own agenda, looking for their own glory, trying to make their own name great. Good unity is found in a work outside of ourselves where we make Jesus' name great because we are in the Lord. And to stand in the Lord is to relentlessly seek to agree in the Lord. The gospel offers freedom. It offers peace. The devil wants division and discouragement. But as victors, our commander-in-chief has conquered and beat the commander-in-chief of this present evil age. We can stand in the Lord. Where we stand determines whether or not we can access peace and then how we stand peace is found in how we stand as a second point it's crazy paul uh if you look at verse four uh he says rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice now i told you uh, uh paul is going to get a little bossy here but he gives this verb rejoice that is focused on this preposition in and the power of being in the Lord uh, runs all through this letter of the, to the Philippian church. It's not just a, a, about rejoicing. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 14, and see that it is about being confident in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, we have encouragement in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 19, we have hope in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 24, we have trust in the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 1, we rejoice in the Lord, just as we do here in verse 4 of chapter 4. And in verse 10, we can rejoice in the Lord. The primary location is greater than a geographical center of our city. It is a spiritual reality that supersedes everything else. We are to rejoice in the Lord. 
And our temptation is to rejoice in our bank accounts or rejoice in our job status or rejoice in our relationship status or to rejoice in our financial status or to rejoice in what people think of us or to rejoice in our performance. And scripture says again and again and again that your primary affiliation, your primary partner, part, party, your commander in chief, you rejoice in the Lord. It is a powerful little preposition. He doesn't say rejoice alongside the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice behind the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice before the Lord. He says we rejoice in the Lord. That is the opportunity that we have. And we should note, rejoicing is a verb. Verb. It is an action. And we have to say that clearly to Presbyterians. Oftentimes, you can look at a Presbyterian. What are you doing? I'm rejoicing. You're rejoicing. I'm rejoicing. Jesus has conquered the grave. And I've got a new primary identity. I'm rejoicing. I speak as one of us. Rejoicing is a verb. It's an action. Do people see you walking? Yes. Do people see you singing? Yes. Do people see you breathing? Yes. Do people see you rejoicing? I don't know. Do they? Rejoice is a fruit of knowing that you are freed, that our commander-in-chief has won. We can rejoice, and the way that we see rejoicing is not necessarily in you like, woohoo, all right, yeah, dancing around like like one of the eight people that are watching college football games right now live. (laughs) Not much rejoicing in the Big 12 yesterday, I'm just saying. But rejoicing is something that that flows out of us because we have this uh, internal peace. It is sharing the victory, sharing the hope, sharing the good news, sharing the gospel. Do people see you rejoicing or do they hear you rejoicing? Come, you really must encounter this Jesus, our King. I want to invite you to know him. Come, I want to invite you. You don't, you don't have, you're feeling down and discouraged. You're feeling lost. Come to one of our grief groups. Join us online. Uh, get a, get, have, you don't have peace financially? Come participate in in our financial peace university classes they're beginning next week and over 50 percent of our congregation has friends or families that are struggling with financial peace rejoice as a verb and invite them to participate invite people to to know christ to participate in our sunday schools our our small groups our youth group tonight live in person rejoice don't just come i'm here jesus is king but rejoice as a verb Invite people. Overflow with life and love. And let me say this. If you don't have that verb, action, identity in your life, it may be that you don't really know the victory that Jesus has given. It may be that you're still living as a prisoner of war. You know who's never rejoicing? It's Eeyore. Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He never, re- he never rejoices. He doesn't. All he has is thistles to eat. Nothing ever goes well. That's not a verb of the kingdom. Peace, how we stand matters. Choose to rejoice. In Christ, you have the choice to rejoice. In Christ, you have the choice to rejoice. And when you do, the second part of how we stand is seen. Paul says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be clear to all. Gentleness. 
gentleness. I don't know about you, but this COVID season has revealed a lot of times where I'm not real gentle and I'm not real reasonable. And those moments usually flare their heads up when I don't rejoice in Jesus being king and sovereign and bringing freedom through his victory. Usually those come in times when I'm trying to be king and I want my way in my time and I'm not gentle. Maybe that's just a table for one up here, but man, you know, and gentleness comes because we know a king who's been gentle with us. He, he was meek and lowly. He came in humility as a servant to all. And then he rose from the grave to give victory to all. And Paul says in verse 5, you see it when you look down, the Lord is near. We have this really long view where the turbulence of the moment, it cannot define us. Paul is not defined by the fact he's in prison. He has a greater reality, and like a child crying out, he knows the gentleness of the Father. But he also has a tremendous amount of grace. The deeper we know grace, the more we'll choose gentleness, reasonableness. How we stand matters. Where we stand matters. But peace is going to be found, friends, when we take a stand. Too many of us allow our circumstances, our dysfunctional relationships, or our disappointments to define us. We allow them to overwhelm us. But Paul says, be anxious about nothing. Paul's going to give us three ways we take a stand in our hearts and our heads and with our hands. Paul says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Okay, Paul, not sure if you know what's going on right now, but there's a virus, it's a pandemic, there's violence all throughout the population, there's a, the largest level of, of division in our country and our culture that any of us can remember, there's crisis everywhere, you're telling me to be anxious about nothing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. And it's not because he's disconnected from reality, he's actually more connected to reality than I am. And it's an invitation how, Paul, can I be anxious about nothing? Simple. Pray about everything. Pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. You see what happens in the posture of our hearts? When we're anxious about nothing, we let go. We're open-handed. I'm not going to give the power of my circumstances authority over me. I'm not going to give the power of my finances authority over me. My commander-in-chief has beat their commander-in-chief. I'm going to open my hands from all anxieties. And in a posture of receiving, I'm going to open my heart with thanksgiving to receive what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. We live in a world where we have to guard things so that we think we can have peace. That's anti-gospel. The gospel is that the king who has won will give you peace in your heart. He will guard you when you're anxious for nothing and pray about everything. Rejoice. Remove anxiety. Replace that anxiety with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. 
every time you feel anxious, pray and give thanksgiving. The way we stand in the Lord, taking a stand is found on our knees. We have a pandemic of prayerlessness because we don't really believe that we have a commander-in-chief that has overcome the enemy commander-in-chief. The second place we take a stand is in our head. Paul, in just a way too personal way, I mean, sometimes you read a passage, you're just like, dude, you are being bossy. I need you to shut up. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Take a stand in your mind. Take control of your mind and think about what is pure, lovely, good. Your anxieties in the media, the fear, the headlines, they do not have authority over you. What your friends think your pain. It does not have authority in your brain. Take every thought captive. Don't let them take you captive. I want to reverse this so you see how we tend to work. I'm going to use a contemporary example from the election. Now, if you let your mind think about what is true in politics, good luck finding it. But if you think about not what is true, or if you don't think about the other party in an honorable way, right, which is not characteristic, there's a limited amount of talking about other people in honorable ways in politics. If you don't think about what is lovely, but you think about what is political, here's what happens. Your heart isn't guarded with the peace of Christ. Actually, we're going backwards. Your heart is super insecure. And you don't have peace. You've got polarization. And you keep working backwards from, you're not taking a stand in your heart because your mind's not thinking about what is lovely and pure and honorable and just and noble and, and, and holy and, and glorious. You're thinking about just politics. This is just one example then you know what you don't have? <laughs> you don't have any gentleness. Your, your fists are like this. Gentleness is not characteristic of people who are totally thinking all the time about politics. And you know what else you don't have? You definitely do not have unity. Where you're trying to uh, agree in the Lord. <laughs> and there's Christians, literal Christians, we're divided in this political season because minds are dwelling on the wrong thing. And we don't stand in the Lord and the power of his victory, but we are mentally shaped by pundits and trying to stand in certain policies. And I'm not saying those are important or not important. All those stuff is important, but not as important in this. Our real commander in chief has won. So we don't have to stand in a primary identity of a part or party, a political party or some sort of social place. We can stand in the Lord. Then we work our way back up. We stand in the Lord. We agree in the Lord. We can rejoice 
in the Lord. We can be gentle in the Lord. We can take a stand in our hearts. We can take a stand in our minds. We can take every thought captive and be determined to think about what Paul prescribes in this passage. And that's the last thing that we see. We take a stand with our hands. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. Practice them. Do them. You've been freed. You're no longer a prisoner. You are part of a victorious family. Jesus is on the throne. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book years ago um, called Surprised by Love. It's, a, it's about the, the unlikely marriage that he ended up having. Um, but he has a tremendous point in where we fix our eyes and where we fix our heart and how that forms our present practice. And he says that when you desire a certain thing, you can't look at that certain thing and just focus on it and receive it. This applied to peace is you can't just look at peace and say, I need peace. I'm looking at peace. Give me peace. You actually have to have something greater to focus on for peace so that your practice in the present receives peace and is peaceful. And that greater thing that we focus on is the God of peace, the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6. The Lord who is our peace, Ephesians 4, 14 and 19. Jesus Christ is the focus of our faith, the author and the perfecter, and we fix our eyes on him. And if we don't, we will lose both the action and the object which we want to obtain. That's Lewis's line from Surprise I Love. It's a powerful paradigm. The invitation's there for all who know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus personally, then you're not going to have peace. You've got to surrender your life to him. You've got to humble yourself before the Lord. If you do know Jesus, the invitation is there. Your commander-in-chief has defeated the commander-in-chief of this present evil age. He has no power over you. None. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would remove anything that was said that would delude the beauty of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray for forgiveness for all the areas where we have not trusted you and your victory. Would you please help us to hear the gospel, the good news freshly. Lord, I pray for those in this room that don't know you as Lord. They don't know you as victorious king over all. Lord, for those in this room that have for too long allowed themselves just to practice religion and not enter into a personal relationship, Lord, give them faith to know you. For those, Lord, who are in this room that are in a far off country and they don't believe that you can welcome them home and love them, Lord, give them faith to return home. Lord, for those in this room that are 
experiencing the devastation of this broken world, broken hearts and broken relationships. Lord, I pray that they would experience the restoration of your rule and your reign. And Lord, you are the Prince of Peace. We are your people. We are in you. You're with us. We ask that that would make all the difference by the power of your Holy Spirit and the glory of your name in our hearts, in our homes, and in the city, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.